welcome to iDGen, a podcast about crypto technology, security, and culture with a healthy balance of enthusiasm and skepticism. We dig into the weekly look at cryptos cutting through the misinformation and hype and search of the signal in the noise. What's happening, Zach? How you doing this week? Oh man, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing good. It's been a pretty exciting week with the merge and lots of things going on and uh, always a lot for us to dive into. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, in this in this episode, we are going to do a little post merge look, take a look at a couple topics related specifically some of the larger ecosystem around Ethereum and how it was impacted by the merge and then also specifically Ethereum itself. Indeed, there was a, an interesting attack that we're going to look at uh, related to the merge. And we also have some news on your let's say the, the normal breakdown for the week. So we're going to look through some of those stories as well. Yeah, lots of fun stuff, including a update on our uh, one of our favorite stories with Terra Luna and Do Kwan. So I'm excited to dive into it with you. Do Kwan, they're coming for him. Uh-oh. The wanted crypto developer Do Kwan accused of fraud by investors following the $45 billion collapse of Terra Luna is uh, reportedly attempting to evade South Korean authorities. Prosecutors have accused him of financial fraud, arguing that his Terra USD stablecoin was a kind of investment security under South Korea's Capital Markets Act. So there's the charge. Uh, Kwan moved from South Korea to Singapore, where the now defunct stablecoin issuer Terraform Labs, which he did co-found, had its fan base. Now, Singapore police have said that he is currently not in the city-state of Singapore. And uh, Monday, South Korean prosecutors told Bloomberg that circumstantial evidence of escape has been found since he left Singapore. And he is, according to a tweet that he then sent, he's not on the run. He's just looking forward to clearing up the misconceptions of wrongdoing. Oh, wow. But as far as I know, as time of this recording, he is not in custody yet. So uh, we'll have to keep on that. Yeah, I think there's uh, five others, including Do Kwan, associated with Terra Luna that they're looking for as well. So he maybe he's out there with uh, what's the billion dollar whale guy, uh, Joe Lowe. I can't. Remember. Yeah. Dude. Hiding. There's an island full of all of these degenerates. Billionaires uh, on the run. We got some other exciting news about the White House. What's what's happening there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm catching the headlines this week and I'm filtering through them and just a not good looking uh, set of headlines around crypto. And as I start looking into the Forbes article, uh, it's pointing towards the White House releases a comprehensive framework for responsible development of digital assets. So if you remember about six months ago, Biden administration came out talking about how they were going to, um, they were commissioning all of this crypto 
uh, soliciting information on how to move forward with crypto. Turns out this is the, um, the, the next step in that process. And I was interested in finding the source of this information and I did. And it's, it's pretty bland to be honest. It's very bureaucratic sounding, but there's a couple key points and, and this is directly from the white house. So here, here's a couple points, uh, worth interest. Over the past six months, agencies across the government have worked together to develop a framework and policy recommendations that advance the six key priorities identified by the executive order on crypto. Consumer and investor protection, promoting financial stability, countering illicit finance, U.S. leadership in the global financial system and economic competitiveness, financial inclusion, and responsible innovation. So again, those were the points that the executive order was set to address. Now what we have are nine reports submitted to the president to date, consistent with the executive order deadlines, and they reflect the input and expertise of diverse stakeholders across the government, industry, academia, and civil society. So they together they articulate a clear framework for responsible digital asset development and pave the way for further action abroad and at home. Okay, so that's kind of like the, the generic preface on what we're looking at. The interesting, so we have those seven categories and I'll we'll link this, the White House in the show notes if you wanna read the whole thing. I'm gonna focus on two most relevant to what we talk about here on IDGen, protecting customers. Still, sellers commonly mislead consumers about digital assets and expected returns, and non-compliance with applicable laws and regulations remains widespread. One study found that almost a quarter of digital coin offerings had disclosure and transparency problems like plagiarized documents or false promises of guaranteed returns, end quote. I kind of feel like I thought it actually would have been more than a quarter, yeah, I'm wondering so, where you think they're getting that stat. Well, that that's from their research here, the reports. Yeah. That, that do they do we always do we trust their research? I, I don't know. Well, let's assume we're trusting it. I, I I don't know. I guess I would have thought that there's there's just so many crypto scams. Twenty five percent. Okay, so continuing on. Uh, back to the article. Quote: The report encourages regulators like the SEC and the CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, consistent with their mandates to aggressively pursue investigations and enforcement actions against unlawful practices in the digital asset space. That sentence there appears to be what most of the salacious headlines focused on related to this release. That little part there to aggressively pursue investigations and enforcement. Yeah, that does to me sound, I mean, aggressive, right? But um, the the overall tone and the overall sentiment here, I, I don't think that it aligns with some of these headlines. So uh, that being said, uh, let's continue on with it, and then we'll look at some of those headlines. Uh, the report encourages Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the FTC as appropriate to redouble their efforts to monitor consumer complaints and to enforce and to enforce against unfair, deceptive or abusive practices. So again, it's saying, hey, any of these government organizations, 
that have a responsibility to protect consumers, make sure you're doing your job to redouble their efforts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so efforts are redoubled. Uh, who knows exactly what that means uh, specifically, but sure enough. And again, okay, I'll end the quote there. To me, like, I don't know. This is not a bad thing. We, we do want consumer protections and it's very generic language recommendations to ramp up enforcement. Definitely. That is the, the, right, the primary topic of our show is related to crypto security issues. And we can, we, we don't even, we can't even talk about them. We would need to be doing a, you know, in one hour each week, we would need to be doing shows every day to, to hit them all because there's so many. And it's really true. I, I think both of our first stories kind of tie into each other because, you know, I think if the regulators already kind of disliked what was going on in crypto, the Doquan and Terra Luna crashed was like swatting a bee's nest and kind of maybe made them react quicker than they would have the other way. And, and they think they're the, the knight in shining armor coming to protect us, which we're all about having some clear gu guidelines of protection as long as they are educated and really understand what they're doing. And that's where I'm a little bit skeptic skeptic about it yeah and uh, it's funny you'd mention that because they do actually mention do Kwan and tara specifically uh, later on in the report they talk about uh so-called stable coins hmm. as, as a risk and and that's the example that's cited and rightly so i mean that's it was a huge huge issue so uh final little bits here on the enforcement side or sorry not the enforcement the protecting consumers side the report encourages agencies to issue guidance and rules to address current and emergent risks in the digital asset ecosystem okay we've been asking for this some of us some people don't want any regulation in crypto right but that's a, a dream it's never going to happen um we've been looking for guidance for years so uh yeah Sorry, that was a quick um, addendum. Back into the quote, regulatory and law enforcement agencies are also urged to collaborate to address acute digital asset risks facing consumers, investors, and businesses. In addition, agencies are encouraged to share data on consumer complaints regarding digital assets, ensuring each agency's activities are maximally effective. So you, you personally together. have had like a bunch of business ideas that I know that you were like, I just want to call somebody and make sure what I'm doing is legit and that I can be a US citizen and do this. And you, there's never been those clear guidelines, you know, and so you've kind of just put those ideas by the wayside. But you know, they were some pretty cool ideas. And hopefully this leads to like, you being able to get some clarity, and maybe you can start some of those businesses. What are you trying to say, man? Hey, you know, these aren't these aren't Greg or, or you know, these were legit businesses, but they're, yeah. you know, not, not, know. Yeah. like can you issue a token as a u.s business on a blockchain i don't know nobody's telling us well you gotta apply the howie test and it goes back to oranges in florida orange fields and things so yeah, yeah exactly and you're right i have there's so many interesting and fun ideas to pursue that just without some guidance um yeah. I, I guess it matters where your your risk tolerance lies. So yeah. um, moving on, we'll finish up this real, we'll finish up this uh, piece on the White House and their report this week. 
So we have um, advancing responsible innovation. I wanted to mention this part, the Office of Science and Technology and Policy and the NSF, National Science Foundation, will develop a digital assets research and development agenda to kickstart fundamental research on topics such as next generation crypto cryptography, transaction programmability, cybersecurity and privacy protections, and ways to mitigate the environmental impacts of digital assets. So uh, it's just hilarious because it's happening. We're seeing, I mean, look at Zcash. We are looking at innovation and privacy protections with cryptocurrency. I don't think we've seen maybe a lot of innovation in cybersecurity on the crypto side, but there's some really cool things happening out there, I think. But it's happening, and it's great that the White House wants to see it, but I don't know if there, there's a lot of forces at play here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious you know, to continue talking about this with you because I, I know that you are in the camp that want some clear regulation for people to be able to start businesses in this country. So I'm curious to think to hear if you think this is it or if you think this is just a, a right step in the right direction or, or are they getting it all wrong? Yeah, I mean, at this point, this report was so generic. It's just it feels like it's um, bureaucracy, bureaucracy, you know, just sprawling page after page. It's very generic text. And yeah, we want to do this. We want to do that. And cybersecurity and privacy, it's all there, right? They're saying some compelling things, but it's where the rubber meets the road. How do you balance innovation in privacy technologies while simultaneously blacklisting addresses for an innovative private privacy technology on the yeah. blockchain? Right. Especially when like we have laws in place that like banks are not allowed to share certain financial information about their clients and their customers uh, without getting a signature from their customer. Why are we not afforded the same right to privacy when it comes to digital assets and transactions? It's like they are very similar that, you know, sometimes we don't want people, our competitors to know where we're spending our, our money. And I don't understand why it's complete apples and oranges um, to them, but it is what it is. Yeah. So wrapping up on the, the White House piece here, when I, I said I started with the Forbes article and a lot of the headlines this week, here is the Forbes headline. Joe Biden just sent a stark warning to Bitcoin and crypto after $2 trillion price crash. So that now based on what we just heard, I, I chose specifically that section around enforcement and consumer protections and read the top points there just so we could compare and contrast it to that headline. And right, we, we could talk about our opinions all day. And what to me, it doesn't read as a stark warning. It's they're they're going to continue regulation. They're, they're pushing agencies to where applicable regulate in double efforts because there have been problems. All that makes sense to me. And I don't see it as a stark warning. However, I had this idea and what I did was I took the text from the white house briefing and I ran it through a few different free online sentiment analysis websites. So basically like primitive, probably because they're free and, and whatever, but decent enough sentiment analysis where it looks at the text and it analyzes the keywords in the text 
and it returns a score or you know you, you can configure it in all different types of ways but what i wanted to see was what the machines or these machine learning algorithms what they thought about that white house um, text press release versus what forbes and many other people were reporting this week the first two that i ran it to monkeylearn.com sentiment analysis 61.8% positive. So it classifies that text that Forbes chose to highlight in a you know headline in a very different way, 61.8%. The next one, texttodata.com. This one was a little harder to read. I wish I would have spent more time on this, but and, and found some some different sentiment analysis engines and things. And maybe down the road we can do this more because this idea of what is your narrative in crypto? Where do you get your information and how does that shape how you see it is really important to me. And with this second opinion, machine learning opinion, uh, we see a positive analysis coming out at 0.074. And on this particular case, it goes from a scale of negative one to positive one, where zero is neutral. So 0.74 overall, Again, on the high side of, of this was a positive article. So kind of interesting, not, I don't want to over index on it, but you can see how the machines would classify this text versus how Forbes and others have interpreted this information. I think that's super interesting. And I'm curious to know if like, is that kind of in line with running it through the Zach sentiment analysis? Like, did you kind of take it as a little bit more negative when you were reading it? Or did you feel kind of positive after diving in? That's the thing. I felt positive, which is kind of why I started thinking in my, or my bags blurring my eyes here, my, my lenses or what's going on. Right. And that's why I thought, Hey, you know what, let me get like a second opinion and let's, let's see what like machine learning thinks. And if we can get some outside. So, yeah, I don't know. Down the road, I'm going to try and track down, like, do a little more research to find really good sentiment analysis and classifications. And we can start comparing the headlines with the actual stories. In this case, it was nice because we had this body of text from the White House, right? Like, that is not always the case where you have such a clear source. But um, yeah, it's, it's a fun idea and I want to I want to continue doing that. So maybe we'll start running some different articles and topics through to see if we can find a delta between how it's being reported and, and what the machines think. And then, you know, of course, our human opinions, too. Let's uh, you know, I like to try and leave the opinions out. I really love to just like try and get raw information. But at a certain point, you know, we've, we've got to weigh in a little bit. For sure. Yeah, I think that'd be really fun to keep uh, trying this with some different topics in the future. So this morning, I was worried we weren't going to have to talk about Hunt. You linked me on the winter mute hack. And man, this one's fun. This is this is interesting stuff. This would uh, be today $190 million. Uh, 190, was that right? Now 189, now 194. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, totaling 118. Sorry, 118. Okay. I thought there was a nine. Right around 119. Uh, yeah, it's tough, right? Sometimes the 
numbers change and we don't know exactly how much and then the value of the tokens. Anyway, let's talk about it. But before we can talk about it, we got to look at one quick thing. We, I want to stop on Wintermute. Uh, this is their second incident of the summer. So that's not good. And essentially what these poor folks did, they were receiving liquidity. This is going back now, June 9th, I think. And yeah, June 9th, the optimism token drop was going on. It was right around there. They were receiving liquidity tokens. They provided an address to the folks at Optimism to send them $20 million. Optimism sent a test transaction of very small amount. They confirmed they received it. They sent a second test transaction. They confirmed they receive it. Optimism says, great, here's $20 million. Well, turns out Wintermute didn't actually have control of the address. That's after confirming two. I don't know how we missed this one. It might have been, I don't know, it slipped our radar. We didn't talk about it earlier in the summer. But, I mean, that's bad. Like, could you imagine confirming receipt and being like, yeah, like, I'm ready. Send it to this address. And it was this simple, man. The address was the address of their multi-sig on the Ethereum mainnet. However, the tokens were coming on the Optimism network. And thus... They did not control that same address on Optimism. And when the tokens arrived, yeah. So that's bad news. I The reason I, I just wanted to mention that as a, as a pre, as context to, the, to this attack, and it gives them also a second article on, on Rekt News. You know, we get a lot of our, our DeFi hacking news from Rekt.News. And this was their second when I pulled up the story or when I Googled for winter mute wrecked, it was that story. And I was like, oh, no. Um, and before we get into the actual attack, we're going to do one more. We're going to jump back to September 14th. One inch exchange, a DEX aggregator, their community. And I think some one or some of their developers discovered an issue with this tool called profanity. Profanity is a tool for generating vanity addresses. Hunt, are you familiar with vanity addresses? I'm not familiar at all. So when you see those cool Ethereum addresses that are like OX420 or oh, yeah. whatever, you know, uh, those are generated with a, a vanity address generation tool. And so essentially what they do is they just generate addresses, hundreds and thousands of addresses until they find one that looks like the one you're looking for. And then they give it to you, right? So it takes longer, a little bit longer to get those vanity addresses. Well, when you do that, you're they're relying, you're relying on that tool and the underlying random generation mechanisms or entropy that seeds the generation of those addresses. And in this particular case, that tool had a vulnerability in how it was. Uh, taking in and the amount of entropy, as I understand it, that it was using to generate the addresses. That story broke last week. And it's worth noting that one of the guys from One Inch on January 17th, 2022, there's a GitHub post where this guy pointed out, hey, I think you guys might have an issue with this in the way that you're generating these keys 
the private keys and check this out, check that out. Like, you know, there were a couple responses of like, hmm, yeah, that could be an issue. Like it would take like 50 days of a thousand GPUs to crack it. But like, hmm, you know, if there's enough money, that might be worth someone's time. Just went ignored. Wasn't even, there's like no responses. It's like, a, it's just this obscure GitHub post, right? Are we so, sure they saw it? There's no way to tell, I guess, but that's yes, like it's, would... it was on the profanity GitHub. Oh. Uh, yeah, the the issue was posted there. Uh, I guess we could assume they missed it, but I don't think they, they probably viewed the issue. Um, maybe someone replied from the team. I didn't, I don't know who the team members were. So the reason that we had to backstory on that is because essentially this is the root of the issue that hit winter mute. And so if this issue popped up last uh, six days ago, September 14th, and it spread through the Ethereum community, security community and things, the question is, why didn't Wintermute act last week and knowing that they had used these vanity addresses generated with the tool, maybe they forgot, maybe they didn't notice. Turns out they did notice and they did act. So this is uh, from a blog post uh, let's see around the time that the disclosure happened wintermute removed all ether from an admin address which suggests that they did realize that it might have been vulnerable however they forgot to remove this address as an admin from their vault so end quote so what happened is they realized wow there's an issue with profanity vanity addresses that's us we use those for our contracts they claim it was originally done to save gas very costly mistake if so uh, however they noticed it they pulled the eth out of that address but they didn't think that hey this address is also an admin on our contract that is connected to our vault so uh, looks like, uh, this is a quote from Muddit's blog post, the attacker is likely a seasoned hacker or Solidity developer. They created a helper contract, deposited stables into Curve to avoid blacklisting, and figured out this vulnerability in a closed source vault contract in the first place. The stolen funds were various stable coins totaling 118.4 million. The majority of these were deposited into Curve's three pool, presumably in an attempt to avoid any blacklisting. The exploiter is now the third largest holder of three Curve, three CRV, with over 13% of the supply. Whoa. Damn. <laughs> crazy. I mean, I just feel bad for these guys. They, they, they saw it, the profanity, vanity address, they noticed, they thought they were doing the right thing. They removed the ETH, the hack would have been worse. I don't know how much they pulled out of there. I didn't see that. I don't know how bad it would have been, but, oh man. And they just didn't think. It, it sucks for them, but we also all cringe for the entire industry at the same time, because, you know, it sucks for anybody's coins were taken or whatever, but it's, uh a negative check mark against our entire industry and delegitimizes us every time one of these headlines come out. So it's kind of cringe for us too. It is. And I think that 
the takeaway here is that we need more security minded and oriented people, you know, uh, working in crypto at these important levels where contracts are being deployed. I would personally not myself use a vanity address generator to generate a contract address for something that was going to hold potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. I just, I wouldn't. And, or I would take the time to really go look at that protocol. I know it's, it may be in hindsight, I sound like a jackass to say this, but if there was, if there's, <laughs> right, if there's a posted GitHub issue saying, guys, you might have a problem with this. I don't know. Um, anyways, maybe that's hindsight. Maybe, maybe like, I don't know. But personally, I don't even, I don't use those vanity adjust generators for that very reason. Never generate your private keys through online tools, through anything that's not open source. I mean, for me, these are just very important things that you just, it just makes sense. You wouldn't want to do that. Why would you trust? You know, I don't know. I, I obviously, or maybe, I, th I think it sounds like maybe profanity is open source. That's how the, the one inch guy was able to, um, to see that there was a potential issue. So, yeah. But. It, it's scary because you could see like the average layman person using one of these vanity addresses and like not seeing why they have an issue. But I think a group like this should be a little more educated than the average user and know not to use this. And gosh, I hope people learn from this. Yeah, exactly. And that's my point. Like the end users themselves don't need to, don't need to have that level. I mean, it would be, they should, right? Because I bet there's, I, I bet there's um, vanity addresses out there right now generated by that tool, by profanity that are vulnerable with coins sitting on them and might not be a lot. Like I'm guessing the attackers hunted for addresses for with the most amount of money right but so it is important to the end user as well right but especially especially if you were in in the developer chair all right uh, up next we wanted to do some reflections on the ethereum merge i have been a little bit disconnected this week doing some traveling so i've done b before researching for the podcast i was catching a lot of headlines and I saw this, you know, only two immediately after the merge, it was only two addresses control 46% of all ETH PO, POS nodes and the tweet went viral. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking into that. And it really got me thinking about this idea that the idea of FUD and crypto has been around since crypto started, but stepping up a level and thinking really about not just individuals or small groups, you know, pushing their narratives around, but like more large scale coordinated efforts. And it's, it's really, it's a type of social attack at this point. Like you could think, you can think of at the highest level, we, you know, media, like where does that narrative get generated? And what it seems like, it sure feels like, is immediately after the merge, you know, at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy nut, there was this coordinated effort to discredit proof of stake. 
Yeah, I, I learned something this week that was pretty interesting on that topic, that there was coordinated FUD against uh, cars from the beginning. And people, the narrative was, uh, what about the poor horses? You're putting them out of out of work. And there was coordinated FUD against the railroad. So like dates back before crypto to like new technologies and people mm-hmm. who are getting kind of upended by them have these coordinated efforts, you know, dating back as far as we, you know, history goes to kind of FUDing the 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 upcoming, you know, new thing. So I thought that was pretty interesting and hilarious. That is interesting. And it totally makes sense to me that it would be, this is the perfect opportunity for such a parasitic market force to really be exploited because you have direct value associated with your narratives, right? Like if you, you could literally affect the price of a smaller token if you could get, you know, a decent sized news outlet to write a story claiming that that token has X, Y, Z or whatever. So, and I guess that is what a lot of the no coiners and anti-crypto people criticize the manipulative nature or the ability of crypto to be manipulated. But, uh, crazy stuff. And in this particular case, I looked into that, these claims around the staking addresses. So in regards to the two address control, what we have are flash bots. They do build the vast majority of relay blocks. Uh, sorry, this is quote from a comment on ETH staker. Flash bots do build the majority of relay blocks, but relay blocks only make up less than 20% of the network. So it's really missing a much more interesting point, which is that surprisingly few validators use MevBoost at all. That's an interesting point that we're not going to digress into. Mev is a whole beautiful dark forest that I would <laughs> we really need to get into sometime. We haven't talked a lot about it on the show, but not today. We're trying to keep this within an hour as there's just so much to, to get into on this. So, um, so those are the relay blocks. So immediately it looks like that particular tweet is not accurate because behind those relays are thousands of different independent stakers, uh, as I understand it. So there's a, just, I don't know, is it, is it, um, when it comes to like a lot of the, uh, when it, when it comes to trying to label this stuff, right, there's this distinction between misinformation and disinformation. It's important to me, although some people say it doesn't matter anymore whether which one it is, but right, disinformation is where there's intentional, where it's intentionally and known incorrect, but misinformation is just people that don't know. And so is where, where that falls here? I don't know. Uh, I've got a breakdown of the pool distributions of Ethereum in real time. So as of right now, Lido is at 29%. There's an unknown slice of the pie of 18%. Coinbase at 13, excuse me, uh, Kraken at 8%, Binance 6.2, and it breaks down from there. I was happy to see my staking pool coming in on this chart. It might be almost the last one at the very bottom, but we're in there. So that's cool. Um, yeah. And and so uh, then we move further into the analysis of this. We have uh, Martin Koppelman, very well-known guy. Uh, I think he 
uh, created Gnosis. I know he was, I think he was like a founder, like the prediction, the Gnosis prediction market, which then turned to like the Gnosis wallet, you know, a very sharp guy knows his stuff. And his tweet is seven entities controlling greater than two thirds of the stake is pretty disappointing. And the statistics he's looking at line up pretty closely with what we just saw. So I think our stats are a little more updated, but he's talking about 27.5 Lido, 14 Coinbase, and then on down the line. Definitely, if you're interested in this, I've linked these tweets and it's worth taking a look at uh, to, to really understand how this goes. He then talks about like, hey, Bitcoin friendly Bitcoin people, like before you try to point fingers, like if you're looking at it based on entity, right, which is what that breakdown is. He's like Bitcoin's actually controlled by four entities is, is more than like, I think it was like 80%. So where we end up, I don't know, but wanted to dispel some of the immediate misconceptions that were floating around out there and it's going to be good to see you know i think coinbase releasing their lsd token just previous to the merge was huge like that that gives people liquidity and the ability to get out of their coinbase staking uh you know take that token out to the larger market and you know people pointed out like hey you, there's nowhere to, nothing to do with it in DeFi yet and it's like well they just released the token you got to give people some time to connect it to their protocols to the DeFi protocols and and things so anyways that's what i was able to dig up on the some of the staking and decentralization attacks going on against ethereum and i think it's good to think about you know compare ethereum and how you know, decentralized it is compared to Bitcoin, but also strive that we can always do better, you know, just because Bitcoin might be controlled by 80%, you know, of the mining pools are kind of in one area doesn't mean that we can't continue to try to monitor things like this and be as decentralized as possible. That's my take. I, I agree. And yeah, this is important stuff to, to keep eyes on. And I think there's a whole other conversation to look into geographical diversity of clients. You know, it's, it's hard when you just look at like top level, like entity control, right? We're, we're not looking at hosting providers and where they're located and what those clients are. There's really a lot to this. And I'm confident that the Ethereum community is committed to moving towards and encouraging sufficient decentralization. I, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Next one on the inside Ethereum side or specific to Ethereum related to the merge, this debate that just raged right after the day after the merge, Gary Gensler, commissioner at SEC says, I think he was testifying to Congress or something said to said, quote, Cryptocurrencies that allow staking could qualify as securities under the Howey test. That's such a lawyer statement. Could could potentially qualify under the Howey test, which was invented prior to the internet. So it's like you're literally trying to fit this new technology of a digital token into a box of something that was 
trying to decide whether a stock, you know, 50 years ago was a security or not. So like, yeah, it could qualify as a security, but like, let's just address the real issues that security laws are outdated and need to be updated. No doubt. Right. Like, why isn't that? Well, why isn't it if, if they're committed to innovation? Why isn't the conversation related to that, that next lower level? I think that's a really good point. And for me, when I read the headlines around this, I was like, man, this is crazy. Like the, the tinfoil hat guy inside of me is saying, why would he do this the day after proof of stake? You know, how, how is that, that timing? Like, really? But then as I read more into it, like, oh, well, he's, I'm guessing that this, wherever he was speaking, this, this, uh, you know, testimony was scheduled long before the ETH merge or not in conjunction with it. So conspiracy hats off, it seems legitimate. And the statement itself may or may not be even directly related to Ethereum. I mean, this is proof of stake versus proof of work it is an important distinction for cryptocurrencies it's it's a you know when it comes down to the environmental concerns this is a huge distinction so a lot of i don't know if i'd call it chaos but a lot of wildness here right after while, while we're all celebrating you know the 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 using so much less energy and like coordinating to do this update on ethereum it's like the day after gary gensler makes a you know a comment like that it's just like let us have a, a week to just you know bask in this that people have been working on this transition for five years and we finally did it but then there's old our old pal gary just kind of you know attacking us right right as soon as we're uh celebrating our first you know small victory and you know where we want ethereum to be yeah, yeah, no doubt. And and on that same token, I, I feel like we could have spent some time talking about the, you know, absolute uh, success that, you know, the success that it all was. But I think maybe we'll just uh, keep the course here and, and keep moving because uh, next we're going to move out of the ethereum direct ethereum ecosystem and into the larger ecosystem pretty interesting to watch the ethereum classic hash rate jump massively makes sense but still interesting to see i've included a chart in the show notes from you know like september 10th um moving forward it looks like the hash rate tripled which is you know quite a lot however it has since dropped and the hash rate is continuing to drop and so um sorry context for this the ethereum classic chain the original fork of ethereum after the dow hack and moving you know th this is what made, made sense to me for the proof of work miners to move to that chain not some new fork even though of course all the NFTs and things wouldn't exist on both chains there. So I'm just going to be bold. Ethereum Classic is a little bit of a ghost chain right now. Like how much innovation is happening there? How many people are building on Ethereum Classic? I know they have a very small but hardcore community, but I can't remember the last time I've seen somebody say, hey, we're building a dApp and it's coming out on Ethereum Classic. So it's kind of interesting to watch all these miners switch over to Ethereum Classic where like 
is there like miners need to sell the token that they mine to pay for the electricity they use to mine it, at least a portion of it. Like, is there going to be enough buyers below them to buy that? Or is this going to be like the nail in the coffin for Ethereum Classic? Because now there's so much sell pressure on it and nobody's really using it or going to buy it. Who knows? Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I, I, uh, I'm out. I'm up to see. There was a lot of discussion about in in the you know as you know I follow the anti crypto circles very closely, and the you know Ethereum community is celebrating that we've done a great thing for the environment by moving to proof of stake, and they're saying whatever. All those GPUs are just going to move elsewhere, and it's they're still mining other coins. However. As I talked about last week on IDGen, a lot of those folks were actually, some of those mining pools were moving their GPUs to machine learning and AI related stuff. And it got me thinking, why isn't there such a backlash against machine learning and AI? And I think the one easy answer would be for the no coiners that, well, there's actually something valuable <laughs> being accomplished with machine learning, whereas they feel cryptocurrency is not. Um, but you know, so maybe you could fall on either side of that argument that you want. But um, yeah, so the GPUs are still out there. And I don't know, like, it's, I think, I, I think you're right. I think that the GPUs moving to ETH Classic is potentially going to have a negative impact on ETH Classic in the long run. And as we're going to talk about next, ETH proof of work is not doing so well. No, I, I heard a really interesting stat that I want to throw in there this week because it's all how much energy uses is all comparative. And I heard that YouTube uses more electricity than the Bitcoin network. And are we going to shut off YouTube because it's using so much electricity? You know, it's like you, you got to compare it to things. And um, I think that it's it's it might just be a narrative that people are using because energy usage is not necessarily bad dirty energy usage is really bad burning coal but using wind energy and green energy that stuff exists out there and if we're harnessing and using it it's it's not a horrible thing yeah i think the again the no coiner argument there is like yes but youtube is bringing value to millions of people which is an a point you could also argue it's radicalizing many people or you know there's a lot of criticism around how those algorithms will move you towards you know some pretty evil content however i don't want to digress in yeah there. we could we could go on to that forever so i'll let you yeah i'll let you move on because i know you've done a lot of other research this yeah week. the the point is basically that what when you're comparing you can't just look at raw energy usage i think you also have to look at the value that that energy usage from that technology provides and the anti-crypto argument is that crypto is not providing that much value compared to you know, something like YouTube. Anyways, moving on to the Ethereum proof of work chain. Last week, I talked about potential risks for the merge. One of the things I said was that I wouldn't be surprised if some of the peripheral DeFi components associated suffer. And I was correct. Here's one example on that particular front, not to to pat myself on the back too much, but uh, I got to say when I saw this, wasn't super surprised. Some of the headlines were pretty sensational, so I'm leaving them out. 
what it actually was was the an omni bridge replay attack that impacted the ETH POW chain, uh, caused the price to plummet. I saw between twelve and thirty seven percent. I'm sorry, I didn't have the time to to fact check or look at even the current rate of how far it plummeted. But what happened is the root cause, the exploitation is that the Omni bridge on the proof of work chain uses the old chain ID, which doesn't correctly verify the actual chain ID of the cross chain messages. So last week talked about um, replay attacks and the potential, and it all came down to this chain ID. So according to security researchers, the attacker first transferred 200 ETH, uh, wrapped ETH, through the Omni bridge. Then they simply replayed that same message on the proof of work chain and gathered up 200 ETHW. So, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome move for those guys. Okay. Um, in short, uh, the root cause. Sorry, I already we already did the root cause. Um, the, actually there's, there's more to it here. Let me, let me just get through that. Um, use the old chain ID and, uh, similar issues may exist in other protocols. So the headlines were saying all oh, ETH proof of work suffers a replay attack. I don't know. I feel like that was a little unfair. And in fact, the ETH PAL team did come out and say that it wasn't us, right? Because the, it was actually a third party smart contract by the Omni bridge they jumped to support that chain, I guess, and they probably deployed a generic bridge contract, but didn't appropriately adjust the chain ID. Um, there's a great article from BlockSec, uh, BlockSec looking into this. If you want the technical details, go for it there. It's linked in the show notes. Hunt and I are always kind of debating if we got too technical or not enough. So I'll leave a further deep technical exploration into the Omni um, bridge ETH POW attack for now. But uh, yeah, just uh, replayed that transaction and earned a cool 200 ETH POW. Wild. Yeah. So um, hack of the week. Yeah, I want to. I want to know. You were started telling me about this before we we jumped on air, but I know you've been traveling a little bit recently. Uh, what happened? So. Yeah, so um, I'm going through like, all right, what was the hack of the week? All all the normal dumb stuff, the text, uh, butcher, pig butchering, all that. But we've covered a lot. Nothing exciting. And then it clicked that I was going through customs in a Central American country this week. And I happened to have very large checked bags of luggage with me. We had also employed the services of one of the bag carrying folks because my bags were so large and the person I was traveling with was not able to help so much. So, so we're, we almost maxed out the, we were just under 50 pounds, these huge bags and uh, I think the combination of those things is we went through the scanners, the customs guy pulled me aside and he said, what are, what, what do you have in here? And he, you know, starts kind of rifling through them. And I showed him very uh, not interesting stuff, towels and a weather station, which by the way is super awesome for any weather nerds out there. The, um, 
ambient weather gear is so cool. A side note. Um, and uh, what else? We had some stain remover. I'm I'm completely on the up and up with this guy. He says, "What what is all this for?" I say, "It's for an Airbnb." And that was the mistake because he then said, "This is uh, oh commercial mm, oh. tax. You have to pay a tax." And hey, you know what? Fair enough. I'm down for that. What's the tax, man? It's kind of late at night. Hit me with it. What's the tax? And he kind of looks at me and he says a number. And he bumps the number up again. And I said, you know what, man? No problem. Here we go. Let's do it. I'll pay you. I go to reach for my wallet. No, 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 no. Nope. You pay him. And I look and it's the baggage guy. The guy who does not it work for customs at all, you pay him and you pay him outside. At which point it was very clear <laughs> that I was being shook down. And uh, I, yeah. It's an IRL hack. It's not, it's not the anonymous over the internet type of hack, but just kind of the in your face type of hack that maybe uh, doesn't exist in some countries and it's very prevalent in others. That's hilarious. Yeah, right? I mean, you, these types of shakedowns are common, more common than others in certain countries. I was not expecting that in this country, but there it was. And in the moment, you know, it's, it's sort of like when you're being socially engineered, one of the really powerful principles of a good socially engineering attack is like urgency and now, and in that moment, I don't, I don't, I don't want any trouble. I don't want them to go, no, you're not interested in paying that. Okay. Then over here, you know, let's see your passport. This is going to take hours and hours and hours. And I'm just like, you know, he picked a number. It was small enough that it's like, I just, I just want to get out of here. And yeah. so then I get outside and you know, I'm like then you know, afterwards I'm going, I should have got outside and just not even paid the guy, <laughs> you know, at all, right. Or just giving him half that. Yeah, they, they were looking at you as someone who was vulnerable, like in any other hack too, though. Of it was late at night, you were tired, you had these heavy bags, and you wanted to get on with your day. And they they probably recognized that and knew you were good for a, a medium-sized shakedown. You you got to be careful when you got the heavy bags, man. <laughs> Come up. Don't have that bag bias. And I, I think we can leave it at that. But this has been a yeah. lot of fun, and I hope you travel safe back from wherever in the world you are. And... Uh, I uh, can't wait for next week, too, because I'm sure there will be no shortage of stuff to talk about. I don't even know if we got to everything on our list today. So we'll have plenty, plenty for everybody next week. Yeah, thanks, brother. Uh, glad to have you back this week and looking forward to episode 16 next week. Thank you for tuning in to IDGen. Peace.